take our Bibles this morning and go to the book of Ephesians together. That's not the book study that we're announcing for the year. We're still going through some selected passages over the next couple weeks to biblically, theologically underscore our theme for the year, doing divine things together. And we'll start here. We exhaustively considered the book of Ecclesiastes seven years ago already in 2013, but we'll just be here just for this week and next. Um, for those of you who are wondering about the Lord's Supper, we are going to have, celebrate that this month only during the morning service next week uh, because of all that needs to take place tonight. So as you're turning to Ephesians 4, be reminded of that. And of course, this Saturday evening, Many of us couldn't make it out to Wyoming for Brandon and Katie's uh, wedding, so there'll be a reception here Saturday evening at 7 o'clock if you'd like to celebrate um, their new life together. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Father in heaven, we need your help. May your word have free course and be glorified among us today. May it have rapid advance in our hearts personally and then collectively as a congregation, as a church family in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I just give some advice to some young married guys. Um, maybe you've already failed in this area like I did. Uh, but if you haven't yet, maybe I could be a little Smokey the Bear reality in your life and be preventing fires. So when you get married, it's never really, really wise to ask your wife, to make a favorite recipe that your mom made for you while you were growing up. <laughs> Can I just tell you that just like never works. So when I first got married, I said, hey, my mom made great lasagna and I think I could get her recipe from her. Would you make that lasagna? And she said, well, sure. And she made it and she goes, well, what'd you think? Guys, your wives can tell when you're lying. I mean, God always knows when you are, and your wives are like right next to that. <laughs> so there really is no kind way to say it's not just like mama made it. Um, my wife was reading a story lately, and she told me another story. A fellow said, you know, when are you going to be able to make biscuits like my mama made? And she said, well, as soon as you start bringing as much money home as my daddy made. <laughs> So guys, don't walk that pathway. Just stay away. And one day, God illumined my heart to say, sweetheart, why don't you make your own lasagna? And I'll tell you what. My mom's home with Jesus and celebrating, so she can't be hurt. My wife's lasagna is now much more appreciated than my own mom's lasagna. And it I didn't even hurt to say that. I, I, think, I think if she was here, it probably would, but she doesn't care anymore. She, Jesus is too much to her, so right now. So there's things that we do sometimes that don't engender unity and togetherness like we intended them to engender. And uh, that's part of our fallen condition, I know. Um, and there's quite a few things in our lives that bring self-inflicted uh, isolation, if you will. We try to avoid those as best we can. I don't think it's any shocking reality for any of us to, to know that uh, even though we're a 
society that's saturated with so many good and wonderful things that you would think a lot of these things would be bringing a, a greater togetherness in our culture, but we're finding out that nearly 70% of all working millennials uh, in a recent nationwide survey are experiencing the greatest loneliness in their lives. 49% of baby boomers are too. The survey went on to tell us that 73% of heavy social media users are experiencing extreme loneliness. And 52% of even light social media users. Those things that we do to, to separate ourselves away from others can inflict the loneliness that God never intended for us. Whether we like it or not, every time we're on our screen, we may be in proximity with others, but we're never together with them. And the more screen time we spend, it's no secret, right? It's engendering now, apparently, a very objective loneliness, a very real thing. So all those times my parents told me to not go to my room and stay there, that it wasn't natural to do that, but it was completely natural to me, right? I want to get away in my own environment. I want to be there. I want to do my own thing. Just let me be me. My dad's saying, get out of your room. My mom's saying, you've been in your room too long. Come down and be with us. I thought that was just the parental rule. Now I'm finding out that it was actually quite natural for them to ask me to do that. And it should have been quite natural for me to obey that immediately. And then to embrace it. It's no secret to us either that divorce rates are out of control in our country and have been for some time. Loneliness in children has been spiking for some time. People need to realize that the socialization and foundational development of a child begins in the home as God designed it to exist. And when kids primarily learn socialization outside of God's construct, a very certain degree of dysfunction unto loneliness will be developed in their lives. And can I tell you, it's, it's quite inevitable. Then consider how polarizing our world is becoming academically, politically, athletically, all about individual and never about team, right? It goes on and on and on. But what many don't understand is that the human being is hardwired by their creator to be and exist with others. God did not create any soul to be alone. Because kids are naturally hardwired for relationships. Look how many today have found their way to friends who are not the best influence merely because their foundational God-given social construct was decimated and then they go to school where they learn divergent social constructs antithetical to Scripture. It's no wonder there's an avalanche of loneliness and may I even say youth suicide on the rise. And the climax of that I'm afraid is nowhere in sight. Jesus' parents set the pattern for us, for children. Luke 2.52, it's right there in one of the most simple verses in the gospel. Joseph and Mary allowed Jesus to grow up in wisdom and favor and stature with who? 
with all men. With all men. And that infrastructure, that pathway for our Savior himself was birthed out of a home that honored the domestic construct that God intended it to honor. We're designated by God to be together because we're designed by God to be together. Our creator has norms and standards put forth in scripture that underpin the formation of a healthy spiritual environment of togetherness for each of his creations. They were all established even before the fall of man into sin. And, of course, he's granted to us how to establish and maintenance the same even as we all are now born into an environment of sin, our own sin. So again, in 2020, this year of doing divine things together, let's remember it's just not a slogan for our function as a church. It's just not a mere vision. It's a statement of our faith, really. The practice of our faith that we'll look at here in just a few moments. And it should be a, a divine reality for all of us in our own walk with the Lord, which we do together with him, and our walk with the Lord with our wives, our families, which we do together with them, and then in our walk with the Lord with each other as we together try to influence our community for Christ. You know, pastors across the country at the beginning of every year set out somewhat of a perspective for their church, a prospectus for their church. I've been in other churches at the beginning of the year and the pastors will pull down the screens and they'll outline their vision for the church. And the church is passionate about, you know, following the pastor's vision. And the more and more I think about all these things that I've seen, and that even in my past, I've done, I've even done here. I'm thinking, wow, those may be good things and great goals, but when we put them out there, we kind of leave everyone the opportunity to decide which one they're going to do and we leave it there. And it should be okay if this is God's will. Then it just shouldn't be something you do. It's something that we do. Remember in Ecclesiastes? It's not about me, it's about we. Anyone that seeks to isolate themselves from God's social and spiritual construct is not a soul that's being governed by their creator. It's just not even close to being scripturally natural, let alone supernatural. You know, I think, by and large, our church gets this togetherness thing more and more. And I think, I've told you this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 11, Paul told the Thessalonian believers, I have no need to teach you how to love one another because you are loving one another. You're taught of God, right? He's your tutor and how to love one another. Only increase what? Never be satisfied, right? Increase more and more. So Maturity Matters lady in the room that a couple years ago, I don't know if she'll ever remember telling me this. She goes, you know, pastor, the larger our church becomes, the smaller it feels because we're more and more of a family. That was great encouragement to me. But may we increase more and more. There certainly is and will be a diversity of activity because there's a diversity of giftedness in the church, but it all should be unto a divine unity of purpose. 
while we remain together. Let me just cite a few things here that being together is not scripturally, and let's cite a few things of what being together is as we seek to land the plane here in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, when we seek to do God's ministry together, it'll never be done alone or in exclusive solidarity. We're going to see this throughout all of Scripture, and especially in Ephesians 4. Hendrickson in his commentary outlines some things that unity is not here. First of all, he says that it's not merely external or mechanical. Unity is not uniformity. That's what he's saying. Unity is not uniformity, but it's internal and it's organic. It's not a superimposed unity, but by virtue of the power of the indwelling Christ, it proceeds from within. So therefore, secondly, it's not merely organizational. It's not everyone um, agreeing to the organization of an entity or a home. It's not just mere intellectual assent. So therefore, thirdly, it's not merely superficial. It's guttural. This desire for spiritual togetherness comes from the heart of a redeemed soul. We call it around here, it's naturally supernatural. It's not merely sentimental. In other words, it's not primarily driven by emotion. Unity at its core, by its nature, is not a feel-good kind of thing. It's sourced, as we'll see here in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in a very objective, divine, omnipotent being. Then we entrust ourselves to that faithful creator in salvation and conversion. It's birthed within us. It's rebirthed within us, should I say, in Christ unto much more than mere sentimentality, right? It's much more objective to that. And so therefore, unity is not inactivity. Unity is not just intellectual assent and agreeing to something and then inactivity since it's born from within. It's born to do something and it's born to do something together. So what is unity? I'm sure it's not more than that, but let's talk about a few things about what it is. It's first of all spiritual. It's sourced in the very nature of who God is. And God said in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, what? Let us, let us make man in our image. God created the heavens and the earth. We all know that's what historically has been called a uniplural noun, right? The Godhead. So before even God said, let there be light, there was a divine togetherness in all of eternity of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. That's why we say when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're already made in His image. Sin's broken that desire to be together, but in Christ it's restored. It's restored in Christ who has forever been together with the Father and the Spirit. 
So therefore, since it's spiritual, it's personal. Hold your finger here in Ephesians 4 and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 together. One of the four major gift passages in Scripture that you know of. This spiritual reality founded in the very nature of God that becomes our reality in God the Son. It's personal in the sense that when Christ transforms us in conversion, it places us into a a personal walk with the creator that Christ has enjoyed from all of eternity, and it places us in a body of believers to enjoy a relationship with them around Christ and through his word. What does verse 13 say? Let's start at verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, right? They're not individual. They're not exclusive of one another. They're many as one. So also is Christ. That's a statement of the nature of the existence of our Savior. That's a statement of his eternality. What did God say in Deuteronomy chapter 6? What did the Lord Jesus say in John 17 in his high priestly prayer? I and my Father are one. We've called you, many, to be one for one purpose. Verse 13 tells us here in chapter 12, for by one spirit, this togetherness that Christ enjoyed with him, that God the Spirit, we were all baptized its parts into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, many parts, one divine transaction. Again, that divine transaction and sourced in a God that really has never known solidarity or isolation. And by the way, verse 13 happens to you, and probably none of you knew it happened to you when you were born again. I don't think there's one soul here, maybe, maybe one, the majority for sure, that wasn't thinking about, oh, wow, as you're praying or as you're entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you're thinking, well, at this point, the Spirit of God is baptizing me into Jesus Christ and therefore into this body called the church that God's expected me to be together and function together with them unto eternal purposes. Wow, this is great. The moment we're all converted, we're just so overwhelmed by our own fallenness and brokenness and sinfulness and darkened darkness, right? We're just overwhelmed that, that our creator would, would adopt us back into his family in Christ Jesus, right? And praise God for forever being forgiven. This is wonderful. We're overwhelmed by that, and we should be. We live our lives continually overwhelmed by that. But that is what we call a subjective element of our soteriology. There's a lot of subjective things that happened to you the moment you were born again that we just learn happened to us throughout the rest of our lives. This is one of them. You were placed by a God who knew what eternal togetherness was into a body 
after having already been created in his image and hardwired to be together with people, now he's placed you together and you really didn't have a choice in the matter. You turned from your sin, you placed your faith in Christ as gifts of God's grace, but when you're being born again, it's God who places you here. He placed you in the church. So it's spiritual, but it's also personal. He places us into Jesus Christ through spirit baptism for a personal relationship. Then he places us. We're all baptized into one body. That's our local church. It's intensely personal. So therefore, it's intensely interdependent. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 12. This body that we're placed into is forever, eternally, organically linked to interdependently exist for divine purposes. That's God's stamp. And can I say that's God's DNA in you? <laughs> Jesus eternally was never alone. Now Jesus in you never wants to be alone. He's coming to you to, to, to sup with you and to dine with you, to fellowship with you. As he continues to enjoy fellowship with the Godhead. So I know he's tremendously excited in these gift passages as we work together for you to be interdependently and organically linked with other people who also have been baptized into Christ. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. This togetherness is spiritual, it's personal, it's interdependent, it's organic, but it's also a togetherness, it's always maturing. It's always maturing. You know that, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there, by waves and carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we, not me, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working, the appropriate healthy working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? In proper choice making. In love. There's an objective love. We choose to do this, but it's not based on our performance. It's based upon that supernatural transaction, if you will, that restoration of ourselves to God in Christ. You guys know we've always preached here and always will once you're born again. You're forever okay with God. 
you have a good day or a bad day, God doesn't love you more or less. He loves you because he loves his son in you. But this is what God's grace develops in all of us is a maturity unto Christ's likeness, unto the maturity of knowing who Christ is. But apparently here, it's, it's a maturity that's done together. It's every joint supplying. So you don't ever exclusively experience spiritual maturity in solidarity. We do it as a family. And this unity was intended to be quite influential. You see that obviously in the way the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for the church age in John 17. In John chapter 13, verses 21 to 38, the Lord Jesus Christ says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. Individual and corporate growth gives birth to gospel influence. That's Acts 1.8. That's Psalm 133, verse 3. The Lord commands something eternal to be done in a body that's unified, that's together. Certainly the unity is born out of our personal salvation, as we've already said and realized, when the body of Christ saturates every practical environment of our lives with this togetherness as well. Go with me and just kind of finger through Ephesians with me. Now you know that the doctrinal portion of the book of Ephesians is chapters 1 through 3 and the practicals 4 through 6, right? So as we uh, crescendo here to chapter 4, we understand that the first practical reality of our being brought together as one in Christ this gospel that the grace of God has shed abroad in our hearts, its first influence is togetherness. That's unity. Verses 1 to 6. And then birthed out of that supernatural unity is a maturity. We've seen that. And that maturity, folks, goes all the way through to chapter 5 and verse 21. There's a personal maturity we're developing together, a personal holiness that we're developing together and the wording there as you know in chapter 5 becomes very very unique and exclusive what that personal holiness we develop together means what it looks like how it acts what it speaks what it doesn't say but then that togetherness is also supposed to be and should be by God's grace experienced domestically so not only individually together as we help develop each other in chapter 4 and verse 11 all the way through chapter 5 and verse 21 that's individually but how about domestically God's never in intended homes for souls and homes to exist alone or just in mere proximity to each other that takes us all the way through chapter 6 and verse 4 but Wow, how about work? So what are you talking about? It's fascinating here when you look at the flow of the text, the flow of the grammar birthed out of our gospel is this togetherness. 
And apparently this unity has an organic reality to it, fingerprints or footprints, you will, on us individually, unto maturity, as we do that together, domestically and even vocationally. There ought to be some type of reality of the maturity that we're developing together as a body, as we study God's word together, that overflows into our home. And there ought to be that light or that fruit, I would say, of mature unity overflowing even into our jobs where even people see that there's, wow, my coworker has got something solid going on in their lives. There's got to be something substantive going on in their lives. Wow, there's got to be something going on in him or her that's much bigger than them. There's a happiness, there's a joy there's a, there's a difference in their work ethic. They, they don't complain. They show up on time. They stay longer. They're the hardest worker, and they're always, again, happy. Where does that come from? They're automatically assuming it's sourced somewhere. But for us, we know it's sourced in the togetherness of a Godhead who found mercy on us after the fall, right? Who placed us into themselves and then into one another. And the overflow of that togetherness touches again individually, collectively, domestically, and even vocationally. So let's look specifically this morning, uh, just to chapter 4 and verse 1, and, and we'll rest here for... Um, a few minutes this morning and then continue this the next time we're together. It says in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now remember, this is the beginning of the practical section of this book. We don't need to rehearse that for you guys who have been in the Lord for, for a long time. But for those of you who are newly saved, when Paul writes his letters, he's always talking about doctrine in the first part, typically. All the books pretty much except for Philippians, some argue Thessalonians, but here for sure, doctrinal, what is our gospel? What is the influence of our gospel? What role do the Godhead have in our gospel? Chapters one, two, and three, but practically Paul says, this is how the gospel of Jesus Christ has influenced me so I know how it's influenced we. He says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. I'm bound to him for life to serve him. And he says then, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, maintenance, this togetherness that's been sourced in God, by his grace, it's sourced in him. By his grace, it's been granted to us. Now, that will never change, but it needs to be maintenanced by us. Why? Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling. Many souls here in Ephesus, but look at all the times the word one is used here, right? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So going back up to verse 1, we'll kind of crescendo down here to really our main emphasis here in verses 3 and 4. There's kind of a request that the Apostle Paul has, and he's asking the Ephesian people to join him in a lifestyle. Again, Paul was not a Lone Ranger believer. You read the scriptures, he, he, he did not like to be alone. I mean, even when he was in prison, right, he wrote of the devastating reality of being alone. Like almost every time in the prison epistles, and certainly when he's writing from prison in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, I want to be alone. I appreciate you coming to see me. And by the way, he never wanted to be um, dormant in prison either, right? I don't want to be alone. I long to see you. I can't. Thank you for coming to see me. And by the way, right, he wins Onesimus to Christ while he's in prison in Rome, <laughs> right? 2 Timothy 4, bring me the parchments. Bring me some warm clothes. I don't want to be alone, and I'm going to stay active in my own personal spiritual ministry. We do this uh, together. So he's asking the Ephesian people to join him in his lifestyle. This gospel has placed us in this family. Now let's do this together. I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Again, the word therefore here is a connector from the doctrinal portions of chapters 1 through 3. And Paul is saying basically this, since you all know this deep doctrinal reality of Christ's salvation and what he has given to us by his grace, now we can all live our salvation together unto his character. Paul is saying, I pledge my life to this. I give the whole of myself to this as a prisoner of the Lord. The grammar here is really a prisoner in the Lord. The Apostle Paul, he was never primarily ever a prisoner by man's hand. He was a prisoner in the Lord. He was held captive by God in Christ forever. And he's saying, understanding being a prisoner in the Lord, I implore you, right? I implore you. The word implore here, uh, the Greek language here would tell us that this is kind of like the, the sight of a beggar on a Roman street or a street of Ephesus at that point. Just picture a, a crippled beggar, a blind beggar with a cup, maybe a few shekels in that cup clinking around as it's shaking the faces of passers-by. And, and Paul is saying here, and I've never really quite understood the depth of why he spoke this way because it seems coming off of chapters 1 through 3 that it should be just a hot knife through butter for believers who have been graced by the gospel like this way just to make this an easy pathway, right? But he knew our fallen nature, so he says, look, I beg you, right? I implore you that there is a character of a lifestyle that matches the character of the gospel that you've received. And by the way, I'm begging you to join me on this journey of forever together in our existence on this earth, learning what this lifestyle is that matches the character of our conversion. Just come with me. Let's do it together. <laughs> 
margin of my Bible here, I have Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the journey of being transformed together, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. This is the reality of what it means to be renewed day by day. Certainly we do this personally, but we do this. The invitation here is together. He says here, I implore you to walk, literally to keep walking. O'Brien in his commentary says, literally to live a life. This is a singular choice to live your life as Christ lived his life. This is an exclusivity that is foreign, forever foreign to the world and their reality. So much more why we need to do this together. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy. Brian continues to say that the this is really the, the topical sentence, if you are, the topic sentence for the remainder of the book of Ephesians. I ask you to walk with me exclusively this way and understanding what togetherness is and all those things we've already touched on. Personal maturity, domestic togetherness, vocational influence. Let's just do this together. He said it's a comprehensive exhortation which covers every aspect of the reader's lives and stands as the theme sentence for all that follows. In the most literal sense, a manner of walking worthy simply means to bring a balance or an equivalence back to life. And basically what Paul is saying to the Ephesian people here, let's do this together, but let's not, let's not get distracted by just focusing on what togetherness means in the home. Let's not get distracted about what it means just for togetherness to uh, learning personal maturity, or let's not just study together exclusively how do we be light in the workplace. Are you with me? All right, this is an organic balance of how Christ influences our gospel, our testimony in every aspect of life, but we just do it all together. Never one at the expense of the other. We do this together as the called out of God. And we see that in this context, don't we? This is a worthy calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. So it's Paul calling them to walk with him and then exhorting them to do this with one another in love. In love. You were called to do this, folks, the day each of you individually said, Lord, save me. That individual divine experience crescendos you out of mere individuality into a togetherness under the glory of God. As we continue on here, there's a disposition that comes with this position, right? The position's been discussed, the invitation's been given to join Paul in this walk, but it's got a disposition, very clearly says here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance 
The word humility here in the first century, how they would have heard this in Ephesus when Paul's letter was read, read to them, was probably somewhat of a derogatory term. They would have heard it negatively, not positively. It was a term of servility, servitude. It was a term in that culture known as weakness or shameful lowliness, right? Certainly the antithesis of what we're told to be as Americans, right? Be all you can be, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, go do you, and go do you, go do you well. Whether anyone comes with you and does you or not, you go do you. Just be you and be all you can be. And this is, this is the antithesis of that. This is saying, I can't just do me. I'll never make it. So the humility that he's saying here, and he starts with this, right? He says, just realize first that you must have others to do this with. You have to right? You have to. And in God's infrastructure, we've already talked about domestically and then ecclesiastically, if we step away from that in an independent way, we are saying, I'm proud. Because he says, we do this in humility, which is what I just described this Greek term meant, which means I can't do this. And even what's a beggar saying? I can't do this by myself. I mean, a legitimate beggar, right? There's self-inflicted poverty, and then there's genuine poverty, right, in Scripture. This is a genuinely impoverished person saying, without your, I can't. In Christ... Our Lord Jesus, as perfect humanity, even said, I can't do this alone. In Matthew chapter 26, in the hour of his grief, the eve before facing the cross, he goes to weep and he asks his disciples, please come with me. And who's at the foot of his cross? But those closest to him. And even at the moment of his death, he was about to experience something in all of eternity he never knew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin isolates. Sin isolates. Grace unites. in humility. This is what we do. We'll continue next week looking at the dispositional aspects of this togetherness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. And my goodness, we thank you so much of the magnificent mystery of the gospel and transforming grace that God's brought to each of us that have bowed our knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and Lord, help us to understand how that grace develops us under maturity. It's never in solidarity. Lord, there are some things we just can't do well alone. I can't be a good husband alone. 
I can't be a good pastor alone. I can't be a good father alone. I can't be a good citizen alone. I need the pathway that your word by your grace has outlined for me so that I can make sure I'm doing divine things together with others. Help us all to learn over the next few weeks together what this means in all of our realities. In our precious Savior's name we pray.